Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. There could be some welcome relief at the pumps with Cabinet expected to sign off on an emergency cut to excise duty for motor oil tomorrow. It comes as the United States hits Russia with a ban on oil imports. The American people will deal another powerful blow to Putin's war machine. Two million and counting, that's how many people have left Ukraine and the UN warns the worst is yet to come. Get in touch on Twitter with your comments and questions on hashtag TonightVMTV. Nearly two weeks since Russia began their invasion of Ukraine and since then we've seen lives destroyed, millions displaced and the world aghast. This was the scene on the ground in Ukraine today. Fighting is still taking place with Ukraine's Deputy Prime Minister describing the scene in the city of Mariupol as catastrophic. Russia says that there will be another humanitarian ceasefire tomorrow morning. Ukraine's President Zelensky spoke to the UK House of Commons earlier and paraphrased Churchill in his speech. We will not give up and we will not lose. We will fight till the end at sea, in the air. We will continue fighting for our land, whatever the cost. All around the world, countries and companies were turning the screw on Russia. Shell says it will no longer buy Russian crude oil and apologised for doing so last week. McDonald's says it will temporarily close its doors in Russia. Coca-Cola is also pulling out. Meanwhile, the US is hitting Russia with a ban on oil imports. Today, I'm announcing the United States is targeting the main artery of Russia's economy. We're banning all imports of Russian oil and gas and energy. That means Russian oil will no longer be acceptable at U.S. ports and the American people will deal another powerful blow to Putin's war machine. Well, let's go live to our correspondent in Washington, Simon Marks. And Simon, we heard in Biden's speech there, this would be a powerful blow to Putin. There had been some expectation this was coming. Of course, it's going to affect the rest of the world more, really, um, than the U.S. in making this decision. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Remember that Russian oil is only responsible for 3% uh, of fuel consumption in the United States. Uh, so the impact of this is more the reverberation around the rest of the world with uh, the European Union uh, today announcing that it is going to uh, wean itself off two thirds uh, of its dependence on Russian energy supplies by the end of the year. This is going to see prices globally rise and 
they're already rising. Uh, I mean, Vladimir Putin, the Russian president, darkly hinted today that he could imagine circumstances under which uh, a barrel of oil started trading above the $300 mark. At the moment, uh, oil is trading at the once unimaginable figure uh, of about $123, uh, almost hit $140 uh, in trading at one point during the last 24 hours. I think for President Biden, though, the real question is political here in the United States. He's had to take this decision, forced to do it really by those harrowing scenes we've all been witnessing from Ukraine uh, over the last several days. And he's doing it just eight months before midterm elections here, telling the American people they now need to be prepared to pay a price to defend Ukraine's democracy. And already the price at the pumps on average across the United States is at a record high and it's going to spiral upwards. Uh, a majority of American people say they support the ban on Russian oil imports, but untested is how long they're willing to sustain the pain of having to dig deeper into their own wallets to fill their cars. The other big announcement today was from a number of US companies, global brands, in fact, deciding uh, to move business temporarily, at least, from Russia. Yeah, very much. And in many ways, this may be the bigger news of the day as far as the domestic population in Russia is concerned, because suddenly uh, they are being told that they will not be able to go and buy their coffee at Starbucks, their fried chicken at KFC. Uh, the Russian Nouveau Riche will no longer be able to subscribe to Vogue's Russian edition, Condé Nast pulling out. Uh, and most notable of all, McDonald's uh, suspending operations at 850 restaurants across Russia. That's going to impact their employees, of course, but it's also going to impact directly millions of Russian people. I can tell you when McDonald's first opened in Moscow in 1990, I was based in the Russian capital and I actually lived right above the first McDonald's in the country on Pushkin Square in Moscow. It is still there. It was a carnival for two years after McDonald's opened in Moscow. Long queues around the block to go and buy a Big Mac and fries. Boris Yeltsin showed up, the then president of Russia, asked for more salt to be put on his French fries. They weren't salty enough. The idea that suddenly the Russian people are going to discover that the most popular fast food restaurant across more than a dozen time zones is suspending operations is only going to add to the pressure that, Vlad that Vladimir Putin will begin to be feeling in the Kremlin. All right, Simon Marks in Washington for us tonight. Thank you for that. Well, joining me now is Mary Butler, Minister of State for Mental Health and Older People. Donica Obakon, Professor of Politics at the School of Law and Government in DCU. Catherine Murphy, Social Democrats co-leader. And David Quinn, columnist at The Sunday Times. Um, well, I want to start first um, with you, Minister Mary Butler, on the news that is emerging when we're talking about um, the rocketing oil prices and the price at the pump in particular that people are feeling so acutely right now and the decision by government to cu cut excise duty. What can you tell us about that? Because Cabinet are preparing uh, to sign off on a cut to excise tomorrow. 
Well, the Taoiseach was very, very clear today during leaders' questions when it was put to him in relation to the exorbitant prices of fuel at the pumps. And as I was coming out here tonight, I was struck by the difference. I saw one four-court selling diesel at 194 and another selling it at two euro and 12 cent. A huge difference of 18 cent, just, you know, about a mile apart. But the Taoiseach said quite clearly that he was listening that they were very concerned and that they were seeing what they could do. So my understanding is that obviously, you know, VAT is very complex. And if you're going to make any difference, differential in relation to VAT, um, the European Commission are involved. So my understanding is that um, the Minister for Finance, Minister O'Donoghue, was in contact with um, the European Commission today. And I also am expecting a, an incorporeal um, cabinet meeting tomorrow um, in, in relation to um, a reduction. And that's a, that's a reduction in excise duty, that being step one. Um, it, will there also be potentially some move around, around VAT? That I don't know. All I know is that they've been working on it all day today um, and they're still working at it, on it tonight. And that's a Europe, that, That'll that, be a Europe-wide decision that may, that may come... Well, shortly. we know the Commission paper was published today in, re in relation to that, but I believe this is something that we're doing ourselves um, in Ireland. That's in and relation to excise duty? In, in relation and to excise duty, and there'll be more information, obviously, tomorrow. Yeah, so what we're hearing, um, Catherine Murphy, is 20 cent off petrol and 15 cent off a litre of diesel. Um, when we've had prices, I think they've gone up sort of 70 cent per litre since January. Um, a huge rise. Do you think this will make an appropriate dent and one that, that motorists will be very happy with? I, it'll make a difference, but I don't think it'll make enough of a difference. Uh, the difference between excise duty and VAT is VAT is linked to price increases, where um, excise, duty are, excise duties are around volume. Um, so essentially, the government has been you know, getting a windfall in terms of VAT, uh, because as the price has gone up, government's coffers have been expanding with the increase in VAT. I accept the point that, that is made that, the, uh, that it's not as straightforward because, there's, it, it, because they're, you know, we're, we're tied into European rules. Mm. But we should be encouraging a change, even on a temporary basis, uh, because that linkage between price and, um, you know, and, and being able to be more flexible uh, be, because that is linked to price, I think is important. I think there's another thing as well that we need to be looking at. The Competition and Consumer uh, Protection um, uh, Commission uh, needs to be taking a very close look at what's happening now. Um, essentially, uh, you know, you can see, you know, you can see very similar amounts on mm -hmm. four courts in, in the same areas. And, yeah. and talking about and the, the, and the fluctuations we're seeing. Yeah. And you wonder, is there a degree of price, price gouging or is there a, a bit of a cartel activity? And I think a very close look needs to be, uh, you know, kept uh, at the, on looking, at the, looking at that because, I mean, I'm old enough to have been around for a previous very large spike in inflation and you can see how it gets, you know, embedded into other products. This is an opportunity you know, to do something that reduces costs. But I don't think it's going to be enough. And I, I, I think, you know, excise mm. duties are, are limited because they're not linked to price in the same way All as right. that is. All right. Um, just listening, um, Donica, to what we were hearing there from Washington, Joe Biden tonight talking about uh, cutting the, the, the 
Russian oil, um, deciding to do away with that. It's easy, easier for the US certainly to do that. They don't have the same reliance on Russian energy as we do here in Europe. Um, the geopolitics around this announcement, um, it's something certainly that's not going to happen in Europe anytime soon, even though it was a big announcement stateside. Yeah, and it's, it's very hard to be honest to get animated about the prices of oil and the prices of gas because the real price is being paid right now by the people of Ukraine with their lives. And anything that people in Ireland have to pay, whether it's more money at the gas pump or in America for that matter, is pales into insignificance to what people are going through now. I mean, I've mentioned before that this is, you know, a battle between two different ways of organising society in Europe. This is a straight fight between a democracy and a dictatorship in Europe and that we have been here before. And therefore, the economy is another part of this struggle. This is war by other means. And we, it has to be relentless because we don't, we, you know, we're not going to use nuclear weapons. They're not going to be committing troops to Ukraine. These are the weapons that are available and they have to be used. And it will be costly. And as the German Chancellor, for example, was at pains to emphasise more than once, it will hurt us arguably even more. Sometimes mm -hmm. it will hurt the Russians. Um, but when we hear about the reliance that uh, around you know, the energy supply from Russia to countries like Germany, countries in Eastern Europe, isn't Europe in a bind here in so far as they can as they can bring those sanctions in, in so hard they can, they can hit Russia without cutting off supply. It, do, it will have an impact, potentially, on how this war plays out. I, I don't know whether economic sanctions will have a short to medium-term impact. And that's, I mean, Vladimir Putin is going for a, a short war. He wants a military conquest. And that's what's really worrying about this coming week, because he didn't get the quick victory that he wanted. Uh, he's now in, you know, encircling Kiev. He's cutting off the Black Sea, from which, which the Ukrainian economy depends on for, for, for exports. Uh, and the worry is, is that as refugees leave, he's going to assume that anybody who's left in those cities is now considered to be a competent, that the, the, the women and children are out of there, and that he's going to get ever more brutal with aerial bombardments. I mean, this is why, again, the economic factors will only take impact in the longer term. They're not going to determine what's going to happen in the next week or two, and the next week or two are going to be really vital. Would you agree with that, David Quinn? Um, on the point about the next week or two being vital, it seems so. I mean, it's actually very hard to really know, objectively speaking, what's happening, because obviously we're not getting the Russian side, and the Russian side will be propaganda anyway. The Ukrainians are obviously kind of bigging up their own side, which is also a natural thing to do in a propaganda war. Um, but you'd have to think that if the Russians don't make some kind of a breakthrough mm -hmm. in the next week or two, it could be an extremely long grind of a war, unless, of course, Putin somehow gets overthrown internally, which, you know, you read Russian experts and they say that appears unlikely to happen. Then we got to ask um, uh, how much pain, and it, again, it doesn't compare to the pain Ukrainians are undergoing, but how much pain will Europeans want to take to their hip pocket, for example? Um, I see the Germans today are resisting uh, an embargo on Russian oil and gas, and even the Green Foreign Minister, curiously, is resisting that as well, because they're saying otherwise it's lights out and we can't do that. And they probably know there would be a voter backlash in that case. And in Ireland, you know, the 20 cent or so um, cut, probably an excise duty that's coming up, is obviously to be welcomed. Um, uh, I was noticing, by the way, I was looking up petrol pot, uh, prices in different parts of Europe. In Malta, amazingly, a litre of diesel costs only €1.21. Now, I presume they're bound 
by the same EU rules that we're bound by. So I'm assuming in the case of Malta that the government takes an awful lot less uh, in tax out of the price, I mean, or adds to the price of fuel yeah. uh, as much tax as we do. That's always been the criticism, has it? Like b before, before this invasion, before this crisis, the cost of living, and it, it always referred back to what we were paying at the pump, uh, Mary, in terms of how much we were paying compared to other countries around Europe and how much the government was taking in on every litre of fuel. Yeah, well, I suppose the way you have to look at it, we've just come out of a pandemic and like 46 billion in supports were provided um, in but the last all, two years to support paid, people. We all, always paid an awful lot of the pump mm. compared to other countries in Europe. Yes, but we, you know, we spend a lot of money on health and on education, um, on social protection. We have but to fund. We, we have we have to fund all these things. And I suppose, look, you know, when, when you when you see the the effects that the Ukrainian um, people are, are living under, but one of the impacts of of the war will be inflation and I think this is only the start of it and you know and I, I do agree with Catherine I do I do think the point has to be made that um, when there's a, a reduction announced um, people have to feel it in their pocket it's really really important that it is passed on to the consumer yeah. because so many they businesses will feel this enough in their pocket when we talk about the, the increases that we've seen even since the start of the year and many would say we're actually not seeing the full effects yet of what's happening in Ukraine at the pumps just yet, that you're going yeah. to see it in, in, in the next few weeks. Well, that actually hasn't hit us full force yet. Like we're only 13 days into this war and we have seen, you know, a, a, an enormous um, increase um, in, the in, the, in the price of fuel. It's having such a knock-on effect. But we also have to remember only last month um, the government announced, um, you know, supports in relation to um, a half billion. So next week, for mm. example, um, the 390,000 people who are on fuel allowance, they'll get an extra 125 euro next week to support them. Yeah. And that will, that has to be welcomed. I mean, there was call as well, Catherine, for excise to be looked at in terms of, um, you know, energy costs in the home uh, around around home heating costs on oil. I presume that's something that you would be supporting too. Yeah, well, I mean, obviously we've got to see what uh, what is announced tomorrow. Um, and I, I wholeheartedly would endorse the point that Dunnock has made uh, because we've got to keep front and centre mm -hmm. uh, the issue. Uh, the, the central issue here is that people are being killed as we're as we're sitting here in this studio. And uh, But I, I think there are other lessons as well for us and it's our dependence and the lack of uh, energy security. And we've been very very slow uh, to deliver on some of our commitments. Had we, you know, had we delivered on, on the commitment we made in COP21 in 2015, for example, we'd be so much further along in terms of energy security. Energy security is going to be a really important thing. But I think there are other things that we can do. There might be fairly small things as well. We've got to make better use of public transport, for example. There's things we can do mm -hmm. with off-peak public transport. There's lots of small initiatives that will make a difference. Some of that may well be cutting the, the of off-peak uh, transport, full buses, you know, are, are better than a whole lot of cars. Um, and I, I think we've got to be imaginative in reducing our dependence, even, you know, even during this crisis. But our energy security has actually been reduced over the last few years by the fact that we don't have a terminal for um, LNG. Um, we won't allow any further gas exploration licenses well, off the coast of Ireland. I think those um, decisions were made, there, there were climate decisions, there were sustainability decisions that were made there saying let's look more towards renewables. Yeah, but um, I mean, by the same token, I mean, uh, there was warnings uh, for years that uh, as Europe began to crack down 
on uh, gas exploration. We were going to become more and more dependent upon Russia. And we might end up in exactly this type of a situation where 40% of European gas is still coming from Russia because we were making such cutbacks um, uh, to our own gas exploration mm -hmm. and badly affecting our ability to say no to Russian gas. And now we're in a, you know, in a position where Germany can say no to Russian gas, can say no to Russian oil, nor can the countries of Eastern Europe, nor can countries like Italy, which are extremely dependent. So we're kind of hoist, hoist by our own And guitar. is that something, Jonica, do you think that Russia has over Europe in all of this, our ultra-reliance on that energy supply? Yeah, but we're paying the price for the decisions of successive governments throughout Europe because we got ourselves into multiple addictions and one of them was on, on Russian energy. I mean, we could see this coming. I mean, this isn't the first attack on Ukraine. I mean, Crimea was annexed in 2014 and Nord Stream 2 was essentially completed after that. You know, we made no provisions to move away from the, the Russian energy dependency. So similarly with the, the prices here with, with, with excise and all that, that's an also, you know, it's an old reliable for the Irish Exchequer. So again, we're paying for that now, uh, you know, in terms of like the, the, the price going up, it's, it's having a huge effect, as David was saying, in other countries it's cheaper. So, but, but the energy dependency on Russia is something that's been there for a while and we had the opportunity to move away from it and it wasn't done. All right, there we'll have to leave it. Much more to talk about with our panel. Up next, we take a look at the humanitarian impact of the war and how Ireland plans to deal with an influx of refugees here. Stay with us. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Two million people, that's the shocking number that have left Ukraine in just 12 days. It's creating a humanitarian crisis right across the continent and has Europe scrambling to work out what to do. But well, one of them on the move is Irish citizen Rachel Dialu, a medical student still in Ukraine and trying to get out. She was studying in the city of Sumy, close to the border with Russia. And earlier I spoke to Rachel's sister, Christiana. I began by asking her about her sister's journey so far. Yeah. Rachel's journey, it has been a long 12 days and the past um, two days of since her leaving uh, Sumi have been insane. Um, today, there wasn't much progress, unfortunately, because um, they, their vehicle they were using had experienced like some tyre punctures and they had to stop a few times um, to get the car repaired, which took a long time. So it delayed the progress of them getting to the border today because that was the plan to get to the border today. Um, where she is now, I don't know. 
I know she is out of Sumi, um, close to safety, um, but uh, not at the border yet. They've currently stopped over for a while um, because there's a curfew. So they have to stay there overnight and then they'll continue down their journey tomorrow. Um, to the border. And Christiana, um, if you could explain to us how how Rachel managed to get to this point, because it's been far from straightforward in her attempts to leave Sumi and get out yeah. of Ukraine since, since this invasion started. Yeah, it's been... Uh, so the way um, we got out, she got out, sorry, is uh, through two random, two regular civilians from Scotland um, Joe and Gary. So um, they are from Scotland and their mission was to go to the Ukraine and rescue civilians. And um, they had been documenting their journey on TikTok. So people were sending me their account and were like, these two men are headed to sue me. Your sister's in sue me. Um, it'd be worth uh, your while reaching out to them and seeing if they might have space in their vehicle and they might be able to collect your sister. So I was like, oh my God, like 100% I'll message them because this was the very first kind of active plan we had or kind of hope we could hold on to someone rescuing my sister or some kind of evacuation mission. So I messaged them, my sister messaged them and they got back to us pretty quickly and they were like, yeah, we have space. We'd be more than willing to take your sister and um, a couple of students and bring them to safety. So that's pretty much how it happened. It was just completely random. The, the kindness of strangers. Um, and Christiana, yeah. um, you've obviously been speaking to Rachel. She must be really hopeful now of getting home. Is there any timeline or any thoughts on, on when she actually may arrive back into Ireland after this ordeal? Yeah, so, <laughs> so, so far, so good. Each day has like kind of been um, unexpected in the sense that yesterday we thought she'd get to the border, but now we're hoping she'll get to the border tomorrow. So I can't um, guarantee uh, times anymore because unexpected things keep happening. But the plan is hopefully she gets to the border um, tomorrow, any EU border, and then from there, hopefully we'll get a flight back to Ireland. But in regards to times, I can't... Uh, uh, guarantee anything. It's all up in the air at oh. the moment. Well, it's good to see that um, there's some hope to this story, Christiana. Thanks so much for talking yeah. to us tonight and all good wishes uh, to me. Rachel and to your whole family. Thank you. Thank you so much. We appreciate that. Uh, my panel is still here with me. Donica, talking about the humanitarian situation over there and these corridors that the attempts to create safe corridors so people can get from besieged cities to safety. Um, it's working actually in the city of Sumi and um, where Rachel's coming from. She had she found another way, is finding another way out um, ahead of that. But in places like Marupol, certainly people aren't having any luck in, in trying to get away. It's absolutely a tragedy what's happening in places like Mariupol. I mean, there was a, a President Zelensky in his speech today highlighted the case of an eight-year-old girl who had died of dehydration. I mean, her mother had already died and they've cut off the water, they've cut off the electricity. Uh, they're just simply starving them out of it in an old-fashioned siege way. And yet at the same time, they're offering uh, officially corridors 
and then as people are trying to leave, they're shelling them. I mean, this is, this is like war crimes as a strategy. Um, it's just remarkable. And now, you know, other cities are facing similar deprivations. Odessa seems to be next on the target list. So, it, you know, it's, it's, it's just remarkable. I mean, some places are luckier than others. And as you know, the destinations are, are mainly Poland and Moldova. A special word for Moldova, actually. Moldova is a country of 2.8 million people. It's smaller than Ireland. It's the poorest country in Europe. And they've taken a quarter of a million refugees, a quarter of a million. So, you know, because I, 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 you hear people like, can we, can we take 80,000, can we mm -hmm. take 100? Just look at Moldova, as I said. Well, well let's look um, at the figures and the number of people who are moving right now is simply uh, staggering. You can see from this map the number of people in each country with Poland far and away the highest um, in terms of people. Hungary, Romania, Slovakia and Moldova, as Donica was saying, also taking in huge numbers. Now we're hearing from our perspective that uh, it could be 80 to 100,000 people arriving in here to Ireland. I know the government is keen not really to put a figure on that, Mary Butler, but in terms of our preparations, how prepared are we for all of this? I think the scale and the scope of what we're going to see is going to be absolutely massive. Like it's, it's day 13, we've seen almost 2 million people, mostly women and children and older people displaced. And um, the government, um, you know, they have um, put in place very, very quickly as much plans as we can initially. So obviously when people arrive in Ireland, um, the border is open, which, you know, we were the first, one of the first countries to do that, which was very, very welcome. And also um, in relation to the most important thing we can do for these people is to make sure they have a roof over their head initially and that they will have access to um, medical support and their children will have access and to education. When you say a roof over their heads, what is being supplied for people right now when they're arriving into Ireland? Okay, so Minister Roderick O'Gorman um, um, opened up a portal yesterday and even in my own constituency office, I was inundated with people actually, people in, in, in Waterford contacted me to say they have a room or, you know, they can support, okay, um, well that's they just can support people. And, and you know, and I, do, I think the Irish people will not be found wanting there. Initially, we are looking at um, hotels because obviously we have, we, you know, we have a situation in Ireland where we have a housing crisis and we're trying mm -hmm. to deal with it and supply is the issue. But like for the amount of people that, that are going to have to come in, we're going to have to be very agile and we're going to have to be nimble and we're going to have to do the very best we can for these people. But, you know, we will do our, we will do our piece. There is no doubt about it. OK, um, agile, nimble and able to respond. David Quinn, do you think um, that we will be able to do this in a way that will help all those people who so desperately need our help? Well, we have to try. I mean, obviously, you know, we can't do anything more than that. Um, I was speaking to a university lecturer today and he was wondering if um, something along the lines of um, NEFIT needs to be established. Now, what he meant by that was simply a group of kind of all the experts across government departments and various other sectors of society to see what is actually possible. Um, because it's an absolutely but unprecedented... But aren't government departments coming together yeah. to try, yeah. try and work out a plan already? So you're talking yeah. about an additional task force. Uh, well, I mean, he was kind of hinting at this, yeah. I mean, obviously, we need to think kind of imaginatively about something like this because the scale of it is so massive and, you know, there's only so many hotel rooms, there's only so many people going to come forward offering places in their homes. Uh, you're talking about um, an indefinite period because if the war doesn't end quickly, you could be talking about months or maybe several years. Um, so how do you accommodate them all? So do we have to, uh, you know, start to build new dormitories and the equivalent of refugee camps with prefabs? I mean, these are the kind of things we need to be thinking of because clearly 
we don't have enough accommodation now in any way, shape or form to cope with those numbers and yet we are going to have to do our best to cope with them. And obviously the cost of the Exchequer and the taxpayer are going to be very big and yet we've got to try and do it. Uh, but we obviously can't do any more than we can do. Um, you know, I haven't really seen... When you say we can't do more than we can do, yeah. I mean, what, what do you say? What's, what's your sense of it then, that this is, you know, we should, we should be saying to people, no, you can't come in, we simply don't have the services available? Well, you can't obviously bring more people in than you can accommodate. I mean, that's obviously an impossibility because, because you literally have to have them sleep somewhere um, overnight and over an indefinite period. And I haven't seen these kind of figures sketched out. So these are simply realistic questions which you've got to ask about any kind of a situation like this. Um, are these realistic questions, Catherine? Um, you know, people certainly, as Mary would say, you know, willing and, and if they can open their doors and help people. But the, the, the question is, from a government point of view, should we be relying on people having to open up their homes to help people? Should more government supports be available? We don't have a great track record in this regard. Yeah, I mean, the, the reaction of the public has been incredibly impressive. It was over 6,000 offers um, already of accommodation. And, um, and to a great degree, we're going to have to rely on some of that. Um, uh, because essentially we know we're in the middle of a housing crisis and it's gone on for a very long time. Uh, so, and we also know that there are some of the other services that are quite threadbare um, mm -hmm. in terms of, for example, offers of assistance in terms of, you know, mental health services. Um, there would be other services that you, you would be looking at in, in terms of a struggle. Now, the, the thing about it is that, that the, the, we have got to do our best on this. Um, but I think there's some very practical things mm. that will be needed. Like, for example, we looked at the community call, which was something that was a coordination of uh, a lot of the, uh, the local authorities, the guards, the HSE, uh, at, at the beginning of COVID. Mm. And some of that actually worked very well. It linked into community organisations. So using some of those strategies I, I that we used to have during to be very, the pandemic. I think we're going to have to be very practical. We've got to understand that people may not have uh, language and... Yeah. Uh, so we've got to look at it from the point of view of having welcome packs and you really direct people. So in a very practical way, this is not at a theoretical level, whereas some of it has to be at that level, but some of it has to be at a very practical level as well. OK, I just want to move on. Like we're, we're talking about the, 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 the influx of refugees, the number of people that will be going all over Europe in order to flee from this, um, this war zone and this situation, Donica. Where is the, the off-ramp here? Where is the ability to de-escalate all of this crisis in Ukraine and bring it to a place that we're, we don't see upwards of more than two million and into the millions having to leave the country and having to flee their country? There is no way. Um, there's no place for diplomacy right now. Vladimir Putin has made that clear. He said that it's capitulation. Uh, decapitation of the government, inserting in their constitution that they would never be a threat to Russia, whatever. In his view, that means not joining the European Union, not joining NATO, uh, denazification, which would mean rounding up everyone he considers to be a suspect. I mean, it's... it's and also re Ukraine recognising the, the, the territories that have already been taken from them. Mm -hmm. And Putin has made it clear that if they don't accept that now, he'll come back with more uh, demands later. So he hasn't given himself an off-ramp. He hasn't given himself an exit strategy. He's sticking, according to his own speeches, everything's going according to plan, which of course it's not. But he's yep. wagered everything on this. If he doesn't win this war, he knows he's finished. His regime is finished. And that's, that's the danger, that he's, he's, he's an, a very desperate man right now. 
Uh, and so do you believe as a result of that we're in for a long, drawn-out, potentially very long, drawn-out war in this situation, given the Ukrainian resistance we are seeing on the ground? Well, the Polish government, for example, have said tonight that they're giving their MiG fighters uh, to Ukraine. They're giving them to the US, who will give them to Ukraine. Um, they're certainly... All the rhetoric is coming out of Ukraine that they will fight you know, very decisively to this. And what we'll see is, is that, for example, in Kiev, the mayor of Kiev has given 25,000 automatic mm. weapons to the citizenry. There are 10 million rounds of ammunition. Once the, the Russian army, if it approaches, you know, the capitals, there you're going to see pitched battles. Uh, you know, people firing from apartment blocks. It's going to be urban warfare. It's going to be the war of the flea. And if we look at Afghanistan, if we look at Iraq, if you look at the Americans there, for example, the military conquest was actually the quick mm -hmm. part. It was the occupation that drained the lifeblood out of the occupying regime. So therefore, the Russians know this as well. There's no All quick right. way they're going to win this war. All right, my thanks to Donoko back on. Mary, Catherine and David will join me after the break where we'll take a look at the other stories that have been making the news today. Stay with us. While the horrors of Ukraine are grabbing the headlines, the other big story of the year is not going away. 11,000 people tested positive for COVID today with more than 800 in hospital. Mary Butler, Catherine Murphy and David Quinn join me again. Um, on these figures, uh, 11,000 cases, we thought we were coming out of this, but it really hasn't gone away, has it, Mary Butler? No, it hasn't gone away and I would be very conscious I was keeping a close eye on nursing homes, for example, and today we have 292 nursing homes with a COVID outbreak, which is more than half of all nursing homes in the country. The only thing I can say is, I suppose, um, you know, especially 800 people in, in, in hospitals, it's putting a heavy burden on staff, it's putting a heavy burden on resources and... People are not getting as sick. That's, that's the most important thing. And we're not seeing the mortality rates. But it isn't gone away. And, you know, that's why we're still very, very conscious that in any healthcare setting, um, you will be wearing your mask for quite a while to come, I believe. Is it something government have been looking at this 30% increase in, in hospital COVID-19 cases in recent weeks? I think um, government are very, are very conscious of it because obviously when you have a, an issue with discharging people who have COVID, so there's like, there's a, you know, we were down to under 600 um, patients um, with COVID in hospital. And obviously when you have challenges on emergency departments, uh, you when there's challenges in relation to bed capacity and you have people on trolleys, you're mm. conscious of trying to free up as much capacity as, as possible. So this is going to put a heavy burden um, on hospitals, on staff, um, this amount of people um, with COVID. So I would be very, very, you know, um, worried um, from the point of view that COVID has not gone away. And we still need to, you know, um, Infe infection prevention and control measures are still really, really important. Do you think we lifted the restrictions too quickly? I don't think we did because obviously, for example, I'll go back to the point uh, we're not seeing people getting as sick. Say, for example, in nursing homes, we're only averaging maybe up to eight cases, whereas before you could have had 40 or 50 people who were struck down mm. with COVID and the mortality rates are, are, are much lower. And we have to move on. Like, it's very important that we were able to move on as a society. Okay. But it's still pretty prevalent, though, in the community. Um, we have to move on, um, Catherine Murphy. Um, your view on this, like we have seen this, like we, we're hearing it anecdotally and now we're seeing it playing out in those figures when we look at 11,000 cases today and I think it was over uh, 20,000 at the weekend. Pretty high figures. When it comes down to it, it's, it's the rising numbers in, in our hospitals that will be a worry. Yeah, and that is the metric, I think, and the most important metric, um, you know, and that's going in the wrong direction. I think we all know that this is an airborne 
uh, virus and like the the guidance that was given in the past in relation to you know keeping windows open um you know and good hygiene is still uh, as prevalent or is still as important now um i haven't given up the mask yet um and i i think that there is a value in using them the on, for example been, on public yeah, transport do you think the guidance in, has been strong enough on that and i'm thinking about that and like i got a train down to limerick and back on Sunday, and no one was wearing masks. Yeah, look, this may not be what it was 12 months ago in terms of the the Delta um, variant, uh, but still people are quite sick with it. Um, it's not something you want to get, and I think people should do their best to try and avoid getting it. And some of those uh, measures are really important that people just, you know, still pay attention to the kind of things that I think people know themselves because we've had two years of it. So you're siding with sort of the, the idea of personal responsibility at all of this rather than the well, government think, having having lifted restrictions. Well, I, I think that's where we are. Quickly. I think that's where we are now. But I, I, I think we know it's an airborne virus and, you know, and it's it's to pay attention to those kind of things um, that uh, that's going to be important in trying to keep the, the numbers down. But the hospital numbers are the key numbers. Mm -hmm. yeah. And you I know? think it's really important, if I could just say, that people who need to get their booster should come forward. A huge amount of people um, contacted COVID um, during Christmas and they would be eligible now for their booster. So, you know, we're still vaccinating people and it's very, very important that people get that booster because it does make all the difference. Yeah, one of, uh, one of, one of the theories being put out there is that because the booster is perhaps on the wane, that we are seeing this, this sort of rise in cases as well. Um, David Quinn, should people panic? Ah, no. I mean, like, even if you take the 800 cases, you know, there's a huge difference, as we know, between people who are admitted to hospital with COVID and because of COVID. And I think the figure a few weeks ago of those in hospital for something else, but just happened to have COVID, was about 40%. And the whole of Europe has basically relaxed restrictions and there's nowhere where the health systems are being overwhelmed again, thank God. We do because have of the number of people in intensive care, though, with COVID on the rise as well. Yeah, um, but again, you know... It's risen for the third consecutive day. Yeah, but we don't know how many of them... Um, we don't know how many of them are in because of COVID and with COVID. Um, and you see, like, if we go backwards <coughs> in terms of restrictions... All we do again is delay the inevitable because Omicron is obviously tr so transmissible that there's little controlling it. And probably we are all going to get um, this variant at least once over the next few years. So there's ultimately no hiding from it. All you can do is slow it down a little bit. Um, and we're coping. And I think we'll continue to cope. Obviously, keep a weather eye out. But there's places like Denmark, which got rid of restrictions before us, and they're coping absolutely adequately. And in fact, there was one of these antibody surveys come out from Denmark the other day, and they think maybe 60% of the Danish population, 5 million people like us, have caught COVID since November. And it wouldn't surprise me if something similar has been the case here and the hospitals have coped, thank goodness. Um, Public health are not flagging concerns at the moment, but undoubtedly the hospitals are under pressure. But I also think we have to look at the fact that we have mass movement of people across all of Europe now. And obviously when COVID is prevalent in the community, it will spread like wildfire. And a lot of the people who are moving are not vaccinated. Yeah, um, and I suppose with that, there is there there is the question, as you say, this this mass movement around Europe as well, um, around you know the push for for vaccinating everyone, and the uptake among children is st still fairly low, isn't it, Mary Butler? It I is. mean, and the campaigns around that they seem to have sort of died off. I mean, once you know. Neff had decided to leave the stage, and all the restrictions were lifted. We haven't heard too much around, you know, campaigns for for vaccinating. 
you know, five to 12 year olds, which as I say, the uptake has been quite low. Well, for example, the mass vaccination centres are still open, but they're not, some of them are not operating seven days a week. They're now operating four days a week and they are open at the weekend. And, you know, we are still trying to encourage as many people to come forward. About 25% of eligible children under 12 are vaccinated. So that's a decision their parents mm. would have made. But for any Ukrainians who are coming into the country, um, if they want the vaccine, um, they will be able to get it. All right, just want to move on to another story that's been making the headlines today, and that's the decision um, to impose uh, airport charges, charges on cars coming into Dublin Airport when they want to just drop someone off and then head off again. It was something that was, I think it was called kiss and fly. Uh, there was no charge involved to drop somebody with their bags and they can go, now you're going to have to pay for the pleasure. Is this fair? I thought it was April's Fool when I heard it, um, that you were actually going to drop somebody outside the airport let them out of the car, take their bags, and you're going to have to pay. I, I've never heard of that before. I, I, I wasn't aware of it until I, I heard it this morning. Okay, so you think it, it sounded like an April Fool coming in March. Um, I did. <laughs> I so, did, to be honest. So, I mean, what, uh, from a government point of view, is this something you're going to kind of give clearance to and say, okay, that's fine, it's a decision by Fingal County Council and Dublin Airport Authority, they want to put the infrastructure in place, they can go ahead and do it? Well, it, I don't really know a whole lot about it, but like it's not a government decision. Obviously, if Fingal County Council uh, gave planning, is it planning permission? Planning permission. Planning mm. permission for this to go ahead. I'm not, I, I don't really have the detail of it. Now, it is in but, place in the North and the UK, and okay. it is in place in other countries as well. But, um, so like it has been heard of, it, it, it does happen in other countries, but is it, what, what do you think of this, Catherine? Well, it's certainly something that's going to anger motorists who are already feeling the pinch of the well, 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 first of all, how do people get to the airport? And in fact, there, there were services available, bus services to take people to the airport that are not there now. For example, the Airlink, the, the airport hopper from Tala and from Maynooth are no longer, uh, are no longer operating. Uh, so, because so, they've actually put it down to a sustainability move. Yeah, we yeah. Are, we're imposing this because we want you to get public transport well, to and from the airport. You have to provide the public transport. There's less public transport now than there was two years ago. And some of that's got to do with COVID. Um, but, so, uh, what, so what, just quick, a quick money-making ma uh, yeah, plan? That's what it looks like to me. Um, uh, I don't think you could push down to sustainability, sustainability arguments when you're not on the other side providing an option for people yeah. to use public transport. I suppose we should just call a spade a spade really with it. I think that maybe has angered people as well, uh, David, the idea that they are saying, you know, get public transport and this is part of our effort to be uh, more sustainable. It's really a very easy way to get extra money. I presume so. I mean, I don't know what the finances are of Dublin Airport. I presume they've been absolutely terrible for the last couple of years, like everybody else. But it's the kind of thing that is just intensely aggravating to the ordinary person, and we have enough aggravations at the moment. We're kind of out adding that kind of a thing to it. Um, so you'd hope it's carefully thought through. I presume Dublin Airport Authority is doing their best to think through it. But I think you can't just ignore... Uh, the fact that we have so many um, uh, additional charges and costs being added to our lives at the moment. And I hope, obviously, it doesn't go ahead. All right. Well, look, there we'll have to leave it. My thanks to the panel tonight, to Mary Butler, to Catherine Murphy and to David Quinn. That is it from us. Our programme is available as a podcast on all major platforms. Our next news is on Ireland AM tomorrow morning. But from all the late team here, good night. Take care.
This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.